Mark chapter 13. We have made our way through 12 chapters and have landed in Mark chapter 13. Please find your way there in your copy of God's Word. We'll be looking today at the first 13 verses of Mark chapter 13. And Lord willing, it will take us about three weeks to navigate this chapter with one sermon at the very end that will be a bit of a recap and a footnote looking back and looking ahead because of the importance of the theology outlined in this chapter. Mark chapter 13, let me read the first 13 verses. As Jesus was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones at what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which is not to be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines also. These are not merely the beginning. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged or scourged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my name's sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death. Father, his child, children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. There are, quite honestly, very few theological convictions and theological persuasions and theological viewpoints that cause as much division in Christ's blood-bought church as does the study of what we call eschatology. Eschatology is simply the doctrine of end things, the end times, the final judgment, the return of Christ. For the most part, there's a broad-based debate, a broad-based disagreement between those of a covenantal and amillennial perspective, believing that we're in the kingdom right now, that the church uh, uh, is functioning as God's covenant people in the way that Israel did in the past, between that camp and the premillennial, or some would say dispensational camp, 
which believes that there's this clear distinction between Israel and the church, and there's a future uh, kingdom promised to Israel, including the land promises in the book of Genesis, that will take place in the future. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about these, and by the way, at the end of this study on this chapter, we will come back to this issue but I found that those general designations, amil, premil, covenantal, dispensational, are largely caricatures by the opposing side of what the other side believes. There is a large spectrum in amillennialism and a large perspective in, in premillennialism. And we talk about those two camps as if they are distinct and monolithic, and, and they're not. But there's another divide among those who are premillennial. And at Mission Road Bible Church, we believe in a premillennial coming of Christ. He will come before a literal thousand-year reign, after which will be the eternal state. And those promises to the Jewish nation of Israel will be fulfilled during that thousand-year reign. We'll come back to that in a few weeks. But among those who are premillennial, Christ will will come back pre, before the millennium. There's two camps as well. And both of these camps have caused me great alarm and, frankly, much pastoral consternation in the last decades of ministry. The one side focuses on on every detail and tries to lay out a timetable and force the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other hand into a congruent kind of prophetical scheme so that we know exactly what's happening and when it's happening. For these, everything on Fox News and CNN has to fit into a prophetical landscape or passage. The other side, though, are those who really don't care. They're indifferent. They don't think much or ever about the Lord's return. They think it might be fantastical, it might be mythical, and someday that'll all work out, but they never give any attention to it. Can I suggest that both of those extremes are outside of the the encouragement of what God expects for a believer, regardless of your, your eschatological viewpoint, to hold As we navigate Mark 13, Jesus' comments will make every one of us ask questions about our own theological foundations, our own eschatology, but it will also give all of us, all of us, no matter your position, hope in the second coming, the return of the resurrected Jesus Christ back to his earth to reclaim the title deed and rule and reign physically forever with his people. Mark's 13th chapter has been known by many designations. It's called the eschatological discourse because it deals with the eschaton, the end times. It's been called the prophetic discourse because it deals with the prophecies of the future. It's been called the Olivet discourse because that's where Jesus and his men are sitting when he gives this discourse beginning in verse 5. And some even call it the little apocalypse. They call it this because they believe that Mark used a pre previously written apocalyptic source to pull his data from. The Olivet Discourse seems to make most sense. This is Jesus sitting on the Mount of Olives talking to his men about how to be prepared for the coming persecution. 
We should pay attention, by the way, to where Mark 13 sits. I'm not being cute when I say it's important to see that Mark 13 is between Mark 12 and Mark 14. And what I mean by that is this Olivet Discourse, this look into the future, this grasping of the eschaton, this looking forward to the second coming of Christ is just after Jesus' conflict with the, the, with the, uh, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin on the Temple Mount, because it involves the judgment, the final judgment of the temple, But it's also just before his passion that begins in chapter 14, which is God's righteous and gracious judgment on our Savior for our sins. It functions as a hinge in both Matthew and in Mark. Matthew actually gives us two full chapters that include more details of this than Mark gives us. We're going to try as much as we can to stay within the the parameters of Mark and see how Mark is using the details of these prophecies for our good. Again, chapter 14 will begin the Passion account. Significant thematically that this comes just before that in order to understand the true identity of Jesus in the present will give us our hope in the future especially related to his death and resurrection. Now, spoiler, spoiler alert, when Jesus says that the Son of Man will come back, that presupposes he's going to go away. This must have been very confusing to the disciples who understood, as all first century Jews did, that the Messiah would come in one visit to the earth, establish his kingdom, rule and reign forever. But Jesus gives them a very, very unhidden hint that he's going to go away by predicting that he's going to come back. You can't have the one without the other. Knowing Jesus will return after his death, which is just a few hours, a couple of days away from this moment, is important for the disciples to develop the confidence they need to remain faithful. So Mark is showing us that Jesus' return is the more foundational ground for our Christian confidence than all the details that exist between now and then. So you open to Mark chapter 13 and you find that Jesus is answering a question posed by his disciples about the timing and the details of coming future eschatological events. What's interesting though is that their desire for a precise answer and a specific timing of future events goes unanswered by Jesus. They even press him privately as we'll see in a moment and he doesn't give details. Instead, the Lord focuses, and this is so important, on the need for them, any disciple, to be faithful and vigilant in his or her commitment to Christ. Now, contrary to popular theological culture, this chapter is not about creating a chart or a movie script for end times. Let me read you a few quotes from Men from varying theological perspectives. These are are, uh, preterists. We'll understand what that means in a minute. Who believe all this was fulfilled in the coming of of, uh, the Titus Vespasian to destroy Jerusalem. These are premillennialists. These are amillennialists. And these are historic premillennialists. Just listen to this. Abraham Curavilla says, Not a treatise on eschatology. This chapter is a call to faithfulness to Jesus on the basis of foreboding events he has predicted. 
James Edwards says, the premium of discipleship is placed not on predicting the future, but on faithfulness in the present, especially in trials, adversity, and suffering. He goes on to say, this admonition as well as the concluding admonitions in the chapter to watch out in verses 33 to 37 indicates that the purpose of the eschatological discourse in Mark 13 is not primarily to provide a timetable or blueprint for the future so much as to exhort readers to faithful discipleship in the present. James Brooks The purpose of this discourse was not to give details about the future, but to provide assurance of Christ's return and thereby to promote promote faithfulness in the present. In its application to the contemporary church, the discourse warns against both fanaticism and skepticism, those two I was talking about, and against both preoccupation with the future only or preoccupation with the present only. The discourse encourages balance and perspective. Great words. And then the great Greek scholar R.T. France talks about the repetition of several words meaning to see and to watch out, to pay attention, to be on the alert. And he says that these verbs uh, set a tone of warning requiring the disciples not so much as an intellectual grasp of future timetables, as their question might imply, as it is an attitude of careful preparedness. This discourse has raised many questions and caused much disagreement among scholars and believers. And I've been involved in some of those debates and discussions. The reasons are evident. It discusses the coming fall of the temple in Jerusalem. It discusses the return of the Son of Man with great authority. It describes the final decisive judgment on God, of God on the world through His Son. And it covers, listen, every generation from that of the disciples to the future judgment when these things will take place in physical form to remain faithful no matter the flames of persecution. Both Mark and Matthew then relay that there is a lot of activity between the now of when this was given to Jesus, from Jesus to his disciples and the future destruction of Jerusalem some 40 years later and then the ultimate, almost 2,000 years later, waiting of the regeneration for the return of Christ. Much of this discourse we think of as we would the day of the Lord. It's a good illustration. When you read about the day of the Lord in the book of Revelation, in the book of uh, the writing, the letters to the Thessalonians, in the prophets in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord sometimes refers to a day, a specific moment. But also the day of the Lord can refer to a series of events over a season of time. That's exactly how we need to think about this. This has multiple dimensional applications for them and for us. In fact, you have to think about that when interpreting and applying this chapter. You have to keep in mind at least four audiences. Think about this. This meant something to Jesus' original hearers, specifically the two sets of brothers who asked him for private interpretation of what was going on. So Jesus' original listeners had an understanding. Mark's original readers some 20 or 30 years later would have understood it in a certain way before the fall of Jerusalem. Readers today and everywhere in between today and that time would have understood, interpreted, and applied it and 
Those who would read this at the time of the execution of these exact events in the future, especially in the great tribulation that we'll discuss next week, would have specific interpretation and application. I think most mistakes about interpreting and applying this text arise from not accounting for the multiple audiences that the Holy Spirit has in mind by putting this in the pages of Scripture. Look at verse 14 for a moment. Mark inserts an editorial comment. Let the reader understand. This is a reminder that the events of the temple's destruction are merely a foreshadowing of the final sacrilege and time of intense persecution before the very end and at the very end of this age. So, the thrust of this section in Mark 13 is given to us at the end of verse 13. Look there. The one who endures to the end, he will be saved. That's the thrust. These first 13 verses are trying, attempting for us to understand and apply so that we will be faithful disciples who endure to the end no matter how high the flames of persecution. And the promise is, if we endure faithfully to the end, we'll enjoy salvation. So as our Lord unpacks this instruction, for us to prepare for enduring discipleship, let's look at this text together and discover four preparations for enduring discipleship. Four preparations for enduring discipleship. We're going to highlight this very fast because they're The intention is not to comb out and ferret out every single detail, but to be faithful to the end and enjoy our salvation. That's what verse 13 tells us. The first preparation for enduring discipleship is in verses 1 to 4. Understand the judgment against Jerusalem. Understand the judgment against Jerusalem. This is for the disciples, for the readers that Mark uh, was writing to, for the subsequent generation, and for those in the future who will see the final judgment. Understand the judgment against Jerusalem. Verse 1. As he was going out of the temple, this is probably on the east side down toward the Kidron Valley where he would be going back over toward Bethany. He was going out of the temple. One of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings, and they were indeed. It's been a long and tumultuous day. Jesus and the disciples have been in in a constant debate all day long, and it's finally time for him to end the day and go rest in Bethany. As they do, one of the men, we don't know who, As they're walking out, looking at these massive, and I mean massive, stones, decides to make a commentary on the beauty of the temple and its buildings, its structure. Now, make no mistake, it was beautiful indeed. It was an amazing edifice. In a very real sense, though, this question is really disappointing, it's disturbing. Jesus has just been bringing judgment against the temple and its leadership. And then they're walking out and one of the disciples says, isn't this beautiful? What a great place. 
For the previous three days, Jesus has been in constant battle and conflict against the temple and a system from overturning the money changers table to interact with, interacting with the Herodians, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the elders, the high priests and the priests themselves. Constant conflict. And the comment as they leave the temple is, what a nice building. It's incredible. But it's easy also to see how they would have been impressed. Mainly because of these stones. Why is he talking about stones? Well, the Roman historian Josephus recorded that some of these stones were, listen to this, just put your mind around this, 37 feet long, solid stone, 12 feet high, 18 feet deep. Today, there are a very, actually, you can see some of this, very few small sections of the southeast corner of the wall, which we call the western wall, if you've been there, of the temple that still remain in place. Now, how, does this contradict that every stone would be unturned? No, this is below ground. It's the western wall. And we see some of these stones that are massive. The disciple looks at that and says, what stones? What buildings? Look at the, look at the amazement of the temple and of the southern, southern colonnade. This is impressive. Jesus has just condemned the false worship of this building, of this structure. And yet the disciples look back at the great buildings on the Temple Mount and try to generate amazement at the structures. This reminds me so much of beautiful Beautiful, ornate, massive church buildings, most of which are Catholic, that, that inside are full of false teaching. That's exactly the scene here. So Mark 11 and Mark 12 have been about the failure of Israel, the failure of her leadership. The content now of Mark 13 follows up as Jesus' judgment on the temple and its false worship. Look at verse 2. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Really? Not one stone. He talks about these massive stones. Tons and tons of stonework. Not one stone will be left on top of another which will not be torn down. Almost unimaginable for these disciples. By the way, this is the final time Jesus would leave the temple. And he gives the most devastating statement of judgment about it. It will be leveled. He predicts the fall of the city of Jerusalem and the apex concentration of its worship, the Temple Mount itself. Most of you know, four decades after this, about 40 years after this very moment, A.D. 70, these words of the Lord would be literally fulfilled. God would send the Roman army under Titus Vespasian to Jerusalem. He would destroy the city, and a big part of his conquest was to burn the temple to the ground, everything that would burn, but the intense heat made some of these stones crumble, and the fires crumbled these stones. They were then overturned. They used massive wedges and massive uh, use of animals and horses to pull those stones out and actually topple them down into the Kidron Valley where some of them rest to this day, bringing it to a leveled destruction. 
The only thing left were the footing stones underground that are now a part of the retaining wall under the Temple Mount, which has been uncovered. And it's where you can see Jews today going and stuffing prayers in that wall. It's the only thing left. And that's what we call the Western Wall. It's a cliffhanger between verses 2 and 3. And we find that out because verse 3 tells us, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, so if you can picture, you have the Temple Mount, he comes out of the, um, the eastern side, comes down the Kidron Valley up, the Mount of Olives would have been over here, he comes up on the Olivet, Dis- for the, uh, uh, the Olivet Discourse to this mountain, this ridge that faces over against the Temple. He sits down there, and the two pairs of brothers come to him. We've met them Many times before, Peter and James and John and Andrew. And they were questioning him, don't miss this privately. I think the reason it's privately is they didn't want to admit openly before all the disciples that they didn't know what Jesus was talking about. So they kind of pull him away. Can we have a little pre-brief or debrief on this? What are you talking about? They ask him, verse 4, tell us when these things will be. What will be the sign, the telltale sign, when all of these things are going to be fulfilled? Probably asking about something supernatural, something massive, something worldwide, something cataclysmic that everyone would see so they would know that the temple was about to be destroyed so that the new kingdom could then come. And they believe themselves to be a part of that new kingdom and rulers and reigning with Jesus in that. He had promised that to them, and they couldn't wait till that time and that moment. Abraham Cravillo summarizes that Mark 13 is, quote, an account of the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy that the old temple will be destroyed and replaced with the new temple, which is the community of disciples founded on Jesus, the cornerstone, end quote. I like that. As I said, the physical fulfillment of these things would take place 40 years, four decades later in the fall of Jerusalem under Titus Vespasian. You can see the the arch of Titus in Rome devoted to the conquest of Jerusalem in Rome that stands to this day. Jesus clearly knew this was coming. Now, this is interesting to think about. He knew this was coming. I think he knew Titus would be the one who come. I think he knew exactly what was going to happen. He could have easily predicted that. Just as Isaiah predicted Cyrus by name before Cyrus was even born in Isaiah 44, 28, that he would be the one to allow the remnant of Israel back into the land after the Babylonian captivity. But for some reason, Jesus... Leaves it very general here. He doesn't get specific. Why? Well, he's predicted his sufferings and death months and years before the Passover down to the exact people who would do that. Why be general here? Why does he not talk about Titus' coming? Well, I think it's really simple. Because the principles of enduring faithfulness in discipleship in the face of persecution would need to be understood, interpreted, and applied in every generation. And had he been so specific as to talk about Titus in AD 70, those afterwards, including you and me, might be tempted to say, well, that wasn't for us. It was just for them. This is divine, inspirational genius. That the principles he outlines 
applied to the disciples, Mark's readers, every generation in between, and the final generation at the end. And it's written specifically to be understood and applied that way. To highlight that he's not isolating these events, these comments to just one time, look down at verse 32. Of that day or that hour, the return of the Son of God, Son of Man, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father knows alone. Take heed, be, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. The point is don't look for the when. Don't look for all the details. Be faithful in the midst of any and every generation. It's an important statement. The true aim of studying eschatology is not, listen, is not to try to figure out what is going to happen and when it's going to happen. It's to have confidence in these events. The reality, as we'll see at the end of this chapter, is to focus on who is coming back and that he is coming back and to remain faithful until then. Footnote, I I have a modified timetable in my mind. I'm a pre-millennialist. I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. I have a chart that's in my mind that collates multiple texts, but we have to be careful. That's not behind why Jesus is saying this to these people and to us at this time. It's about, verse 13, enduring discipleship until the end, faithfulness, It's important to remember that the disciples naturally understood the Lord's coming, again, as a single event. Jesus is saying, this is more complicated than you knew. His second coming will be to come back and take the world as we know it now away from the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 2 tells us among the rule of the one who is giving Leadership to the sons of disobedience, and he will take back his earth, promising his eternal kingdom. Future generations then, including you and me, are to understand the Lord's accuracy in predicting the fall of Jerusalem. And if he was going to be as accurate in predicting that as the next 40 years would show, he can be absolutely trusted that everything else he says is going to be true, down to the very detail of the stones being overthrown and dumped into the Kidron Valley. His point is, understand the fall of Jerusalem. Even today, we should see that Jesus' accuracy in predicting the fall of Jerusalem 40 years later should give us absolute confidence in his accuracy to predict all future eschatological events. That's the first preparation for enduring discipleship. The second is in verses 5 and 6. Watch out for false messiahs. Heads up, watch out for false messiahs. Jesus began to say to them, see to it that no one misleads you. This is one of Mark's favorite words to describe Jesus' description. It's from Bleppo. Look out, heads up. Be discerning. See to it. Mark this. Verse 5 actually marks the actual beginning of the Olivet Discourse. It begins with a verb, an imperative that we're going to see 
over and over in this chapter. Blepo is the Greek. Have discernment. Look out. Pay attention. Heads up. Watch out. There's a shift here. Jesus pivots from the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70 to future generations who will themselves endure persecutions because of their faithfulness. Just a footnote briefly. Some contend that there is no future kingdom, literally, and that this chapter speaks only of the fall of Jerusalem. Matthew 24 and 25 and Mark 13 are only about the the um, destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. It's called preterism, if you've read about that or heard that. That Titus Vespasian's attack on Jerusalem fulfilled all of this in chapter 13. But there are problems with seeing all these events as being fulfilled in A.D. 70. For example, the illustration Jesus uses is that of birth pangs. Birth pangs happen at the end of pregnancy And think about this, the destruction of the temple occurred in the first generation of the church, not the end. Also, Jesus says that the gospel must first be preached to all the nations in verse 10. That clearly had not happened by by, by AD 70. Something else, Jesus describes the abomination of desolation in verse 14, where the Antichrist would come into the temple just before the second coming. And there's no record of anything like that happening in A.D. 70. Also, Jesus speaks of a time of tribulation that was greater than the world has ever seen before. And it would be worldwide and include cataclysmic events affecting the entire globe. The devastation of Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem, as bad as it was, was a local event in Jerusalem. It wasn't worldwide. And one more thing, Jesus describes the events in the natural world that would accompany his second coming, like the darkening of the sun and the moon, down in verses 24 and 25. The falling of stars from heaven, nothing like that is recorded in the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. All to say, this could not and was not fulfilled in the, uh, 40 years later in AD 70. Verse 6, this is heavy. Many will come in my name saying, Amy. It's the Greek word for I am. I am he. Not just I am the Messiah, but I am God. I am the world leader. I am the world ruler. I am the answer for the world's problems. There's a whole litany of people who who attempted to do this. Bar Kokhba was a false messiah who led astray about a, hundred, a, a group of people about a hundred years later after Jesus' resurrection. David Alroyi was a medieval example of someone who made false claim to be the messiah. Jim Jones claimed to be God himself. David Koresh, we can go on and on. Jesus is saying, don't be fooled by false messiahs. Don't be fooled by those who falsely claim to be me or claim to be God or claim to be the ruler and the answer to the world. You might say, well, how would we know if it's Jesus? You would know if it was Jesus. You would not be answering that question. Just read Revelation 19 and 20. No one has come into the world with those kind of signatures on their announcing 
presence. The point is to watch out for those who claim to have solutions to the world's problems that are independent of God and His Word. Keep trusting Christ. Keep trusting God. Keep trusting His Word. Don't be fooled by false leaders and false messiahs. And that little word, Amy, that's the same word that we find in John 17. When Jesus said, they said, where is Jesus? And he said, I am exact same word that is used here. So it's not just saying, Jesus is claiming to be God there. This is saying, beware of those who claim not only to be the Messiah, but God himself. There's a third preparation for enduring discipleship. Understand the judgment against Jerusalem. Watch out for false messiahs. Number three, don't be distressed by international turmoil. Don't be distressed by international turmoil. Verse 7, when, not if, when, as you hear of wars and rumors of wars, threats of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place. But it is not yet the end. Another clue to give us confidence in premillennialism. That's not yet the end. Even though that may be happening now, it's going to get worse in the end. And Revelation chapter 6 through 19 will tell us about that. Nation will, he gives us more color. Nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Just turn on the evening news and you'll see this happening all the time. There are wars happening, starting and ending right now today that we don't even know about. Then he goes into the natural uh, uh, world. Earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These things are merely the beginning. He says it again, the beginning of birth pangs. Now, when you pair the beginning of verse 7 with the end of verse 8, it gives us clues about how to interpret this. Jesus speaks of the beginning of birth pangs. This means there will be an escalation toward the end. In other words, a long period of wars and rumors of wars that do not indicate the end, but just that the world is not under Christ's control. Wars, earthquakes, famines. I've said many times before that I was, I was in Northridge, California in 1992 during the, the earthquake, uh, the Northridge earthquake, and it, it scared me more than anything I had ever experienced. That was nothing compared to this. We find out, we'll find out later in this text that entire landscapes and mountains and valleys will be completely rearranged because of these earthquakes. They will break the Richter scale. Let's be shepherded by this verse. Verse 7 tells us not to be frightened and not to be worried when we hear of these things. There are some folks who live in a state of anxiety from reading the newspaper and the Bible in their quiet times, fitting current events into biblical prophecy at, at extreme detail, that's the exact response, opposite response the Lord calls for here. His point is remain faithful as disciples no matter what is happening around you. Not figure out what is happening around you, but remain faithful. Don't be an expert, in other words, in forecasting prophetical fulfillment 
Be an expert in faithful obedience and discipleship in your personal world. That's the point. Listen, friends, the news channels and newspapers are not faithful guides for biblical prophecy. And neither are the the soothsayers who have their own websites who begin telling you this is exactly what it means. We, We can go back for millennia and see people who are predicting with absolute specificity what's happening and they were all wrong so far. The accent here is to be faithful, not to try to be accurate, to expect, to know they're coming, to recognize the signs, to see the birth pain, but not to be so specific that we say with certainty what our what things are happening that we have no confidence for. Don't fear. Don't be distressed. Can I add in there pandemics? Don't be distressed by things that are happening in a sinful world to sinners. As we'll see in the end of this chapter, the focus and hope should be on the return of the Lord where all things will be made new then, not now, where Paul told Timothy, in this world, evil men will proceed from bad to worse. And fourthly, a fourth preparation for enduring discipleship, and this is where it gets real. Anticipate atrocious persecutions. Anticipate atrocious persecution. You can say persecutions of atrocities. He starts with verse 9, be on your guard. He used the Greek word blepo for discernment. Here he uses a a word that we translate be on your guard. Be ready. Don't be surprised. Don't be alarmed. Don't be alerted. Jesus has been speaking of international turmoil on a global scale, but in verse 9, he narrows from the international to the personal. How personal? To your family. He zooms his lens in from the world down to your home and talks about persecution on a personal, private, familial level. In other words, believers will cease being spectators to the warring international drama, and then they, we ourselves, will become participants, from spectators to participants, in the persecution and oppression that Jesus is about to endure himself in the coming days headed toward the cross. What does he mean by that? Look, look, keep going in verse 9. They will deliver you to the courts. This is the word for Sanhedrin, literally the religious courts. You will be flogged, that means scourged, 39 lashes, in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my name, for my sake rather, as a testimony to them. What does this mean? Well, I think the clearest example of this, and there are many others throughout the course of history, the clearest example would be the Apostle Paul. He was many times arrested by the Romans, many times arrested by the Gentiles, put on trial before the Gentiles. Festus, Felix, Agrippa, not even to mention the Jerusalem council. 
scourged by the synagogues in the book of Acts, beaten and left for dead in Acts chapter 17. This is traumatic. Expect that you are going to get in legal trouble from your faith. Expect it. It's a testimony to them, though. Hopefully for some, like Agrippa, who said, I will hear you again. We don't know if he became a Christian, but he, was, he heard the testimony and became interested even more. But sometimes it might be, as 2 Corinthians 4 tells us, a testimony to them where when they find themselves in judgment, they can never say, I didn't know, I never heard. Verse 10, the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Wow, is there a lot of speculation about this verse? Let me see if I can kind of make a little bit more sense of it for you. Does it mean that the gospel must be preached to every nation through missions and evangelism before the Lord returns in final judgment? Well, yes and no. I mean, the, the Great Commission tells us to take the gospel to every tribe and every nation to not have any barriers to taking the gospel. But is Jesus up in heaven waiting for the Father to send him back until every single tribe and every single jungle and all around the world finally hears the gospel? I don't think so. The reason I don't is during the Great Tribulation, which we will discuss next week, by the way, John's vision recorded that in the book of Revelation, and it tells us this. Listen very, very interestingly. John 14, verse 6. I saw another angel. This is during the tribulation. I saw another angel flying in midheaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God, give him glory because of the hour has come for his judgment to come. Worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and springs of waters. And another angel, a second one followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. I think that's the time, at least Revelation, the book of Revelation tells us when the gospel just before the end. This is the birth pangs before the end. All the world will hear the gospel through that supernatural angelic proclamation that we believe to be a real, physical, literal event. We'll study in the next paragraph next week in Mark 13 that uh, Jesus is indicating that he will be vindicated the gospel will be heard in the whole world and an angel sent from heaven and the final judgment will tell everyone. I think that's the better application of what this means here. Otherwise, there would be no sense of the imminency of Christ's return since that day until the whole world had heard the gospel. And Paul and Peter both tell us, look for his return today. Testimony to them. This reality has been proven by blood over and over in the past 2,000 years. Opposition has not stopped the power of the gospel in its worldwide extension of God's kingdom. In fact, faithfulness in the midst of persecutions has and will serve as a testimony or even an indictment against antagonists and against foes of the gospel. 
Jesus is simply telling us that as we wait for his return, we are not to hide in the shadows. We're not to be passive in our anticipating his coming back. We're to be active, telling people the good news of the gospel. And if the worst that could happen does happen, they were to take our life. We have a welcome feast with him in heaven. But the Lord promises comfort, guidance, and power in the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 11. When they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand about what you're to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not saying that in preparation for today, I should not have... uh, have worried about what I'm going to say. No notes. Just get up here and he'll tell me what I'm going to say. No, this is talking about when Paul was before Festus, Felix, or Agrippa. When anyone comes before a legal or a civil authority to give a defense for their faith, when anyone stands with their families and gives a defense, he will give us his comfort, words to say, and assurance, assurance that if we're being accurate to the gospel, he will use that truth in the ears of the hearers. He's not saying don't be prepared. He's just saying don't be afraid. You'll know what to say when the time comes. When they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry. Those who were severely persecuted during the Puritan era had a saying, fear of persecution is far worse than persecution itself. Don't be afraid. Brother, verse 12, will betray brother to death. Father will betray his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You say, well, that's a terrible thing that might happen someday in the future in the Great Tribulations. Friends, that is happening today, this Sunday morning, right now in some Islamic countries. It's happening today in North Korea. This is a real reality where people are ratting out their own family because of their relationship with Christ. And that's causing the death penalty, lethal consequences personal betrayal, apostasy, falling away, unfaithfulness, increased wickedness, evil will precede the final judgment. From the first generation of the church, persecution is a part of the picture and plan of Christianity's advance. Don't be surprised. Be on guard. Don't be alarmed. And then verse 13. You will be hated by all because of my name. Can I just say that as a, as a man living in America in 2020, I, I, if you reverse the, the calendar 20 years, I would have said that's someday future for my children or grandchildren in our country. We are watching this happen now. We're holding to a biblical morality, holding to the truthfulness and exclusivity of the gospel is making people literally hate us because of our standards and our Savior. And what's the point? 
That's to be expected. Don't be alarmed. Peter said, this should be no surprise to you. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Chilling insight. There will be those who fall away because of faithlessness and apostasy. Even further, the threat and anxiety of being hated because of Jesus will cause many to shipwreck their own faith. They want to be liked, appreciated, not persecuted so badly they will resist it, even to the point of denying the Lord's name. But Jesus speaks of those who will endure. He calls us men and women, young and old, to enduring faithfulness to follow him. And please, even though we may have it easier than some in our world and in our culture, pray for the persecuted church who even today will be seeing the loss of life because they are faithful to Jesus. It's happening today in our world. And we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters who will one day tell us that tale in eternity. By the way, this is not speaking about absolute and consistent, constant faithfulness. We can look at this and say, wow, the one who endures till the end will be saved. What if I have a moment of weakness? What if, what if, what if I, I lapse? What, what if I have a moment where, where I disbelieve? Or a... Would you just ask Peter about that? Denied the Lord three times in one night. This is not talking about momentary weakness, but an overall rejection of the gospel and of Christ. Jesus wants his men and us to have a theological confidence to look beyond any present sufferings to the ultimate reunion with him at his second coming. This is all stitched together. That's the end of the chapter. He doesn't want us to be deceived by the appearances in the world, earthquakes, famine, pandemics, persecutions, natural disasters. None of these should take our eye off of him because he's trustworthy and always right. Let me, let me back way up. If you look at this Olivet Discourse, Jesus has, is, has been intentionally, think about this, intentionally a bit cryptic in his answer to their question. When is this going to happen? He's cryptic in his answer. But this is precisely on purpose. Why? I believe the Lord is answering here with precise ambiguity. What does that mean? The genius of this is that these words would find application for the immediate hearers, the disciples, the hearers of Mark, readers of Mark's gospel, every generation from then till now and the final generation who will see these things take place and fulfilled in their eyes and ears during the great tribulation. The Lord's intention is that these men in his presence and all subsequent generations have an expectation and understanding of the dreadful events coming to the church. These dreadful events, listen, would be universal and personal. So, Jesus intends for those men he's talking to, all believers who would follow, to be prepared at varying levels of 
persecution and rejection and familial dis, uh, dislodging and yet to remain faithful. Even those in the great tribulation who will experience far worse than us, all to look for his return highlighted at the end of this chapter. Even when the Antichrist himself desecrates the temple. Our Lord's expected response is faithfulness to our faith, not generating end times time charts. As we're going to study at the end of Mark, Jesus is alive, he is well, he's going to return and fetch his followers, true Christians, and bring us to heaven and heaven to us. We should be careful then to perceive the difference between life-threatening persecutions that this predicts. And 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, be, Don't be alarmed by the momentary light afflictions which are causing an eternal weight of glory for us. This is about preparation. Friends, let's be prepared. Let's reset our expectations. And above all of that, let's have a relationship. I trust you have a relationship with Jesus Christ who in his first coming atoned for sin and paid for our salvation. And in his second coming will bring judgment to the earth and redemption physically to his kingdom forever. If you have questions about that, please give us a call. Send us an email. Don't let this day slip by without speaking to the Lord, inviting the Lord Jesus to come to you and save you. And that you'll be saved to the end because of enduring faithful discipleship. Believe that he will forgive you for your sins, that he rose from the dead, that he sits at the right hand of God and he offers you eternal security in the midst of a severely insecure world. Next time we're going to look at the great tribulation and everything in between now and then and understand his faithfulness to us and the need for our faithfulness to him.